We're obviously super thrilled to be um, having a lot of the success that we're having. You know, when the independent went digital only a few years back, um, it was certainly a risk in the industry. And I think that's led to our, you know, honestly, our ability to be agile and nimble and, and truly have sort of this impact to move forward and swiftly and be profitable year over year. You know, we're seeing about 30% growth across revenue and audiences, um, and we don't expect that to slow down anytime soon. Hello and welcome back to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at all the news from the media world over the past week and then have a bit of a discussion about it. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you just heard was from this week's interview with Blair Tapper, who is the Senior Vice President of the Independent US. So we talked about what her priorities have been since the brand's US launch, what an independent reader looks like over the pond, and why they're doing so well commercially as other publishers struggle. Independent US, that was like 1776. <laughs> <laughs> just had the bicentennial of it, yeah. 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 Uh, before we get going, we've just released a special conversations episode looking at the great privacy reset. We spoke with insiders Jana Merrin, Futures Nicholas Flood, and Permutives Joe Root. It's a detailed look at the conflict between advertising and privacy, all that stuff about toasters following you around the web, and how publishers can take advantage of the changes that legislation and the platforms are bringing about. Give it a listen now. But before that, and before we release that conversations episode, we're going to talk about paywalls versus patronage. Or patronage, I guess, actually, because that sounds better that way. So do subscribers actually want paywalled content? So Simon Owens, a friend of Media Voices podcast and somebody who is effectively an expert in monetizing his own content, has said that more and more creators are pivoting to a patronage model. So he posed a question to his followers, would you be more likely to pay a $10 a month subscription for exclusive content or $5 a month for a subscription where the content is free to everybody, but you get a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling for making it so? So... What happened, Esther? Well, pretty much everybody said the second one. And the people that said the first one put caveats on that kind of meant that they actually meant the second one. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? How, do you, how do you caveat it that differently? <laughs> um, I think, you know, they, they said that they pay for access for other people and things like that. Well, at that point, yeah, that's, that's, that's then the second one. Um, but it's, it's quite, it, he's not the only one to, to do this. Um, because Simon Owens points out that actually Charlie Wozzle of the Galaxy Brain newsletter, which has just been bought by The Atlantic, he also wrote in his in the piece where he said that he was being bought. He said, um, "He didn't get Mike's... bought." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but he he uh, <laughs> he went across. Got, got, uh, what, what, Something what like get? indentured servitude. He got signed. He got signed to the, signed. Yeah. Yeah. the yeah. publishers. Yeah. It's talent agencies out there. So before he got signed to the Atlantic, uh, he wrote this piece about what, what was going on. And he said that from his experience, most people willing to pay for content did so in a patronage model. Many wa- many wanted to subsidize it for others, which I thought was, oh gosh, I regret reading this Anna, which I thought was so rad. Yes! Totally! Uh, I, I love this so much. It's every time we talk about the Guardian's model and people say, oh, well, that's the Guardian. You go, no, it can be replicated elsewhere, even for individual newsletters like this. Okay, I, okay, I love but... this. I love this. I love this. I love this. I love there's that. a strangeness in this. Go on. Well, there's a strange. I, I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. 
But there's a strangeness in quoting Charlie Wazel here because he's just joined the Atlantic and gone behind <laughs> a paywall. Do you know what I mean? I know, yeah. Esther, I know you've got an explanation for this. Go. Um, well, not, not for Charlie the Atlantic. <laughs> no, I think that there's quite an important distinction that, that Simon, it, it's sort of buried in Simon's piece, but it's, it's this idea that if you've got this personal relationship with a creator, which is, you know, really nice label for these newsletter people. These God, days. that sounds <laughs> properly spiritual, doesn't it? And if, if you've got this relationship with, with a creator, you're much more likely to want to support them in kind of this altruistic way rather than, um, and I know people will say The Guardian, blah, 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 but most people don't have that that one-on-one relationship with a publication in quite the same way. So this is, this is not at all a call for publications to suddenly drop your paywalls in the hope that everybody will donate. I, I will call for that. <laughs> And the thing with the Guardian well, is the Guardian, has such, the Guardian has such a high amount of traffic that the, the yeah. tiny proportion of people that choose to pay do actually manage to then support the rest of the business. But Chris, why have you been banging on about this for so long? So my thing has always been, it annoys me when people say, oh, we have to have this paywall discussion because great news costs money to produce. And they say that as though it's the end of the discussion rather than the beginning. Whereas in reality, it should be great news costs money to produce, dot, 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 but it's also pointless unless you can disseminate it to people. And there are people who, as no fault of their own, through either kind of their own financial structures or because newspapers haven't made enough of a case for them to pay, they cannot access this high-quality news. And as a result, they have been left to the depredations of misinformation online. So there is not just a, a serious kind of moral case to be made that news should be free to access. Sure, that we can talk about how it's done, whether it then gets locked behind a paywall, you know, a week after the fact. But to say that paywalls are the only way to subsidize news through memberships and subscription payments is is laughable to me. And so this, I think, is is evidence that you can do that not just with enormous scale, but you can do that with enough. You can do that at any scale, provided you do have that proportion of people willing to pay altruistically. And you know, actually, that there's um, there's a special episode we've got coming out in a couple of weeks um, where I talk to a lot of um, news uh, news media startups in the US, and quite a few of them actually use a. <laughs> that's what I've just said about the Guardian. <laughs> quite a lot of them use a Guardian style donation model where they say, you know, five dollars a month to support us creating local news in you know Santa Cruz or wherever, and it's not it's not something they rely on as a source of revenue, but it is something that does provide this nice income stream it's it's a, it's a sort of nice extra probably much in the way we use ko-fi mm. it's not it's not a revenue stream we depend on but if people want to give us you know want to donate to us and get that warm fuzzy feeling from that <laughs> we're all yeah. for it well that's what we... axios locals doing with the newsletters as well mm-hmm. mm. that's a kind of contribution model something i think that always gets missed when we when we talk about this is the fact that we it's probably a media voices podcast problem where we approach things very cynically but i'd like to think <laughs> that enough people are genuinely altruistic enough and they genuinely do care enough about society and kind of the impact of politics and you know even sport and community on that society to want to their fellow man to be well informed so i feel like don't laugh but that's this is the thing i know that it's <laughs> ah I, I the people the are mostly good business model is this Ex- does this not depend on the kind of journalism you're doing like if, if you're doing that kind of out oh yeah i'm talking about news yeah. click for click for outrage you know what the various celebrities been spotted doing driving mm. around something yeah all, all the stuff that gets that does get attention but not necessarily the right attention you're not building that relationship whereas if you're doing I'm just, I can't think of an example now. But if, if you're doing things that are much more 
relationship building with your audience they're much more likely to think oh yeah do you know what? actually I think that's important work I will donate and support it and I think that this is very much something that Absolutely. will work for certain types of people and publishers and very much not for others and that that relationship comes back in bigger publications come back to the brand so the telegraph's growth isn't driven because they're doing nice warm fuzzy caring social justice journalism it's driven yeah. by people that want to read that point of view and the guardian is doing well for, from a different point of view so it's a it's about the relationship that people have with the brand and i think that's why that's to simon's point it's why it's in one way easier for individuals to do the patronage model because that relationship is you know, by definition personal yeah. well he actually he did write quite an interesting bit about um he said the first thing that was driving um that this trend where people are sort of lowering their payrolls he said if you're a solo creator and you've got a paid and free model you've kind of got to be constantly working to feed both those beasts you've got to be putting out enough free content to keep your paid funnel topped up you also then got to keep writing stuff for your paid audience so they feel like they're getting value and he said that's actually an incredibly difficult thing if you're just a yeah. one-man band and that a lot of people would be much better off just focusing on making a couple of really good things a week and um yeah having that sort of patreon patron mm. <laughs> you could do it you I could do it, it you could do other it audience contribution platforms are available well which of you dropped the uh the judd legham um example in there because i hadn't seen that before uh that's that was simon owens pointed that out so this american journalist judd uh legham i assume that's how it's pronounced removed his paywall and took no noticeable hit to subscriber numbers uh he currently generates jesus christ what is that figure Three hundred eighty-two thousand us dollars so that what? he's he's one of Substack's top publishers. Oh my god! And that well, that's without it being paywall, then presumably. Yeah. See uh, that uh, that to me, I think is is evidence enough that if you do have your own niche, if you do have what Peter said that direct one to one relationship, you can do this, and yeah. you can frame it as a sort of I want this to be successful, therefore it needs to get as many eyeballs across it, both to serve its own purpose as news or analysis, and also because then that does drive up the number of people who are going to pay. So there's a there, dual pronged there... approach there. There's a slightly there's another layer to this, and Simon Owens has written about that as well. The messaging that you put around it is really, really important. Because if your content is just free and no one knows that you're taking contributions or whatever, then you'll never make any money. So you have to be look at the Guardian with those mm. boxes at the bottom of every story. Do you remember it was I think a year after the Guardian started doing that, or maybe it was when they reached a significant revenue target, they changed what they how they did that messaging. They did it from a question of survival to then took yeah. it to a question of sustainability. So I can see that working if you are, say, as you said, Peter, a news brand who doesn't necessarily have that one-to-one relationship as a individual creator does. But for somebody like Simon Owens, you can say, look, this is my own personal reason for wanting to do this. So you can be much more personal about it. Okay, th- this is all way too positive. Can I throw the cynical spanner in here? Absolutely. We, we, would, we would be remiss if we didn't. So despite all the evidence we've just discussed, um, one of the things that popped in my mind when Simon posted this poll in his Facebook group is I just thought, well, it's, it's all very well for people to say that they would support you for $5 a month. Mm-hmm. But is this not a bit like the micropayments thing where everybody says, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely pay 50p for an article or whatever. But actually doing it and actually driving people, do you need a little bit of stick as well as carrot? What is a stick, though? What would that uh, mean? The, a, a paywall. A so little bit. Cool. So, so many people hit to think, okay, yeah, mm. you know, I'm going to get my credit card this time. and Because if it's just, so you just, it's just free all the time. Yeah. I, I don't know. I can think of a couple of examples outside of news specifically. So I'm thinking about, you know, people who will pay to um, 
watch a Twitch streamer because that get, then gets rid of the ads, but that content is still available for free. Mm. It's just got that little bit of a kind of an added bonus not having to watch ads. The big thing, you know, that's what Simon Owen's talking about is support and, you know, support the work. So many of them message around that. But there's also that idea of added value that you can then bring in later on. Jacob Donnelly did a thing about this not long ago where he was talking about monetizing further down the funnel. So you do the work, you've got the content, you bring people in in the traffic, it gets funded by advertising largely. And then as you get people further down the funnel, you can charge them for additional value like memberships mm. or, you know, you monetize the community rather than the audience. Oh, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, you monetize the kind of the community aspect of it rather than the commodified like news mm. side of it, which is has a societal uplift by virtue of being free. That's could really, take credit really good. For it. Yeah. And that's that, that's what Casey Newton said, wasn't it? Is that his Discord server was the biggest yeah. paid yeah. converter yeah. for him. In that people then want to be part of that community. Right, I think the big it. point. Sorry, the big <laughs> point for me in this is that what the the, the approach that Simon is suggesting actually lets publishers keep their options open. Mm. They can do all sorts of stuff. Yeah, um, it's it, almost having that hard paywall is limiting in the amount yeah, that you can actually exactly. do in terms of how many people you can reach, the impact that your journalism then has. It's yeah. To me, this seems like it won't work for everybody. It won't work for say a lot of magazines, which are kind of by nature different than news. In that you know you you want yeah. that kind of exclusive analysis. You want that. It's a different relationship. But for news specifically and news analysis, like these guys do, and I think this is just a total success story, and I love it. And now onto the news in brief. Uh, somewhat ironic because I've got a baby yelling at me through the baby <laughs> monitor right now. Um, a damning home working report has found that fathers are progressing at the expense of mothers. Are you shocked? Yeah. Can I tell you what was shocking is I saw this described as a she session, which was uh, oh, extremely a she session, like a recession, but for uh, women. That's a horrible okay. word. I feel like I'd have to see that written down. So. Yeah, it's horrible <laughs> anyway, word. Um, yeah, this, this project has found that women who remain employed are more likely to work from home and shoulder a heavier burden of day-to-day -day tasks than their male colleagues. Um, 41% of women have said that they've taken on more responsibilities at home and 45% of men have gone back to the office more than their partner. So yay for pandemic equality. <laughs> yay for the pandemic patriarchy. It's not hard to believe either, is it? It's, I think it's too easy to believe. It's terrible. One of the other things I thought was interesting in this was that there's a number, I can't remember what the number was, I, I, I guess it's 40%, say, that what of women that are basically saying they're, they're avoiding sharing how they feel about this whereas mm. there's men are much more ready to share how they feel mm. so if men are pissed off they say and, and women are hiding that and i think that's part of what's got to change here is that employers have to make it easier for people to say what's really going on and not not have people thinking oh this is a weakness mm. that you can't cope that's just bullshit and you hear that so often do you know what would solve that <laughs> more women who yeah. understand this in senior leadership <laughs> yeah 100 percent. but and you're not going to you know get what? that as long as this situation continues you are not going to get that i saw something that uh basically at some news organizations now gender disparity in terms of you know people appearing on boards is slightly lessened but nowhere near enough so we're still kind of banging our heads against the fact that people are so entrenched in the board and so it's still such an old boys club in a lot of ways that yeah I don't know how you solve that. I've shaming, no public shaming. With it. Yeah, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's new data out that says print 
<laughs> print for news is effectively done. Um, surprise. I think the point that it's news they're talking about specifically. Uh, and consumption trends, 84% of US adults get their news from a smartphone, computer, tablet, often or sometimes. Often is half. So there's a majority of people getting the news from from digital and more more scary if you're in print 65 percent they really or never get the news from print and the quote that i read this in the media post and tony silver's uh quote from mrs brown is if further proof is needed of the eclipse of print media for news i'm not sure what it might be um so it's just you know, it's going the way of the dodo in that sense. Despite just, just, what the bur- just bury says. your head in the sand. Just bury your head in the <laughs> sand and it's not a problem anymore. And finally, audio news services. Customized audio news services for your smart speakers and in-apps are not working yet. So the format of interrupted news briefings are not helpful for publishers or the audiences they serve. And forget about customization because we are not there yet. So for Nyman Lab, Joshua Benton has argued that digital audio relies too heavily on word of mouth for discovery for it to be worth investing in these kind of customized news briefings that you get. Whether you're listening to kind of Spotify and then get those news briefings, or you actually subscribe to one of the services that kind of pulls them in automatically. So what makes, oh, he says, that makes discovering new pieces of audio extremely difficult, which is what makes things like in-app promotion and word of mouth so critical. He's talking about there about long-form podcasts, which benefit from having a community build around them, which you can't do for these snippets of digital audio news. So I don't know how we solve that. Do we start inserting ourselves into the jingle at the start or midway through the interview? I, I thought I thought this was really interesting because it's the first time I've thought that audio audio news snippets just do not work for you know. And he's brilliantly explained why. Yeah, I mean, what's, what what would is this sort of mainly people are getting it through smart speakers in terms of like flash um, briefings and things like yeah, that. yeah, exactly. So if you just kind of say you know Siri, what the hell, Jesus, sorry. <laughs> if you if you say Siri, you know what are my top stories <laughs> for the day? Okay, yeah. I suppose is this is this just I don't know. Is this audience education? Do audiences just not really? Do audiences actually want this? Do we want to be reminded of the news every couple of seconds of the day? <laughs> well, that's a that's a bigger problem, isn't it? <laughs> you are very cynical today, Esther, aren't you? I am. I am. This week's guest is Blair Tapper, Senior Vice President of the Independent US. So we talked about how she's worked with the publisher on launching the brand in the States, but I started by asking her about her background and how she came to her current role. So um, right before I joined, I was at the Daily Mail for six years, helping to launch their US business. I always joked that when I started, people were like, oh, is that a place you check email like daily mail. I was like nope sure is not it's a big website um and so I've always had a love and affinity for you know UK rooted news brands and when I was approached you know two and a half years ago to join the independent it seemed like the perfect time to make make the move over before being at daily mail I had been at a bunch of other digital first companies um exo group which is a big wedding publisher here and then a couple of the bigger publishing houses like Condé Nast and Meredith as well yeah. So since joining the independent US, what have your priorities been in terms of sort of launching it, getting out there? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, the biggest um, sort of hurdle right now for us is awareness. Um, obviously, we have a massive, massive US audience of about 40 million uniques. 
Um, but people are still sort of like, oh, is that a UK brand? Oh, are those US consumers? And I think, you know, without the brand heritage um, that our team has in the UK, it is sort of breaking through the clutter here and establishing really a unique voice for the independent and a justification for people to work with us um, in addition to other news partners that they're always, you know, already working with. But it is about adding us um, and finding a unique positioning for us within a brand's media mix. Um, I started about two years ago. We started to ramp up our sales team um, and we're really, you know, all systems go at the start of 2020. And obviously the world turned upside down in March. Uh-huh. And so we had really only been in our office as a team together for 12 weeks um, when COVID hit. Um, obviously everybody has been working from home and we've been able to grow um, in a time when so many businesses are contracting. We doubled the size of our US team um, and everyone has been home, but obviously super connected. And we are actually moving into a new um, New York City based office in November, which is super exciting because I think just having that energy for a growing team um, and that you know camaraderie of working together is super important. Um, but it really has been all about growth and sort of pushing the justification for why the independent um, in a sea that is so so crowded. Yeah, that that was going to be my my next question mm-hmm. is that um, I suppose what made the independent look at the US and think you know we can take on that market where you've got some really strong established players, especially in New York. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know it's always one of those things where personally for me, I never want to be in a situation where you're sort of selling smoke and mirrors, or you know if you build it, they will come. You know it was already built, and there was a natural and really organic connection that readers were having with the content on the site. We were seeing just tons of traffic from U.S. readers, and you know people were like, "Oh, is it uh, expats? Is it?" Um, you know, the political type, and it really wasn't, you know, one of the many things that our editorial team is proud of is sort of the depth and breadth of, of what they're covering and what they're writing about. And I truthfully think that people are seeking out quality content, unbiased content, mm. content, you know, that, that truly interests them. And if they can't find it or they don't feel like it's um, truthful or representative of their beliefs or allowing them um, to make their own decisions, you know, the internet lets people search and discover. And for us, that's been so, so key to our success. Um, There was a study recently that Ipsos came out with about sort of consumers' trust with different brands. And the independent did incredibly well, you know, outperformed so many competitors because it is about providing like this unbiased, authentic voice around issues that matter. And um, I think the tone is really respectful you know, to our readers, it lets them um, digest information and form their own opinions. And it's not just sort of, um, for honestly, a lack of a better word, clickbait. It's truly quality content and, you know, people are seeking it out. And so we looked at that sort of natural draw to the content and, you know, logically it's, okay, well, how can we build a a really secure commercial strategy to support what's already there? Yeah, um, I'll definitely get into the commercial strategy a bit later. Yeah, but I think um, UK listeners—they're sort of quite familiar with the independence UK presence, the editorial stance. Um, so, when you're translating that into the US, I suppose what does a US independent reader look like to you? Yep, and it's interesting. You know, we say—is it the same as our our peers in in the UK? Mm. And 
I do think there's a lot of overlap. You know, we tend to attract a very well-educated, affluent audience who has sort of a thirst to learn and discover, right? A lot of our articles are long form. Um, we're doing really interesting um, deep dives or, you know, sort of investigative journalism that quite honestly requires someone to read and think and digest about. And we want people who are curious um, and sort of conscientious consumers to come to the site. And so when we've looked at a lot of data and we have an amazing um, pool of first party data um, and just sort of in a lot of focus groups, you know, we know they're educated, we know they're affluent, um, but there is sort of this mindset behind them that is globally, uh, you know, I'm a global citizen, I'm aware of, of problems in the world, I wanna make a change. Um, and sort of a lot of issues that for better or worse, oftentimes worse have become politicized, especially here in the States, I think the tone and what's attractive so much of our audience growth has been this unbiased voice around issues that can be fragmented and polarizing. Mm. Yeah. And digital news sites, they've had, well, I suppose challenges of putting it mildly, but they've had some challenges maintaining profitability, especially over the last year or two. Um, but you've seen some real success. So can you outline some of your results and, and why do you think you're doing well commercially when others, certainly even more established players, are struggling? Yeah, you know, we're obviously super thrilled to be um, having a lot of the success that we're having. Um, you know, when the independent went digital only a few years back, um, it was certainly a risk in the industry. And I think that's led to our, you know, honestly, our ability to be agile and nimble um, and, and truly have sort of this impact um, to move forward and swiftly and be profitable year over year. You know, we're seeing about 30% growth across revenue and audiences. Um, and we don't expect that to slow down anytime soon. So it's a really exciting time for us. We're continuing to invest in new sites. We launched um, a Spanish language site earlier this year. There are some additional initiatives that are coming out in 2022, really around empowerment um, and just you know giving our, our readers opportunities to take action. And I think that's really innate to our brand um, and sort of our ethos. But at the end of the day, right, it's, it's how can we be a truthful news source that's going to be able to exist um, and grow and continue to deliver quality content so that people do keep coming back. And I think, you know, we don't want to be reliant on a volatile news cycle. We want to build something that's sustainable and truthful at our core so that irrespective of the world around us, um, we're continuing to sort of forge ahead and grow at a really strong clip. Yeah. Is that still the case? Um, I know people have talked about um, a lot of publishers are seeing traffic and things fall off given that um, you know, Trump's not in power anymore yeah. and, and the COVID situation's calmed down. Um, are, are you seeing that as well at the independent US? Yeah, you know, we had seen some traffic fluctuations and I think certainly in the lead up in the US specific um, to last year's election, it was a cycle unlike anything arguably we've seen in the world. And, you know, I say, I say to my team all the time, I hope you know, we don't have a, a, a traffic day um, like, you know, we had when lockdowns were announced, though, though truthfully, we, we came sort of close when uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram went down the other day and people were, were panicking. So for us, it really it's about um, what is our audience on a on a day when news is just news. Right. And yes, we've seen those sort of peaks and valleys. But it's all about that stable traffic for us. And that's what's continued to grow. And that's really what we were watching and monitoring and, and offering to advertisers. Yeah. Is, it, is the site primarily ad funded? 
advertising obviously makes up a big portion of the site, but we have a ton of different revenue streams. Um, we work with a bunch of different syndication partners. We have um, affiliate partnerships um, and tons of different sort of audience profiles to, uh, uh, I should say audience partnerships to help amplify the messaging. Um, but of course, you know, the commercial strategy and advertising is at the core of the profitability of the site. Yeah. Um, I, you're also involved in refreshing that commercial proposition. Um, mm-hmm. can, you, can you explain a little bit about what that yeah. looks like now? Absolutely. So I, you know, I teased it a bit um, when I was talking sort of about our audience and and the users that we have, Mm. but we really believe that, especially in light of current conditions, and it does, you know, it's hard to isolate or or sort of pull out what's been happening the past two years almost, right? Like the world is a different place than it was. People feel differently. They act differently. They want to be involved differently. And we truly believe that for 35 years, even as a print publication, The Independent has been about challenging and debating issues. And recently we just rolled out this new platform and it is all about making change happen. And whether that change is small or large, whether it's organizing a massive march or rally or making a purchase that you know feels like it's a better choice for sustainability because we know that's a huge issue people are concerned about, this idea of making change happen is at the root of our commercial messaging. Um, we believe that partnering with brands is truly helping to amplify a campaign message that they have. And a campaign does not need to be political. It can be any message that a brand or partner wants to get out. Um, because at the end of the day, right, using a platform like The Independent and being able to harness our engaged consumers and have them take an action, whether that's clicking to add in their data um, or actually going someplace to learn more about a product, all of those small items can lead to massive change. And so everything that we're doing is rooted in the idea of change and empowering our consumers to make educated and and unbiased choices around uh, change missions. So in, in practice, is that sort of, uh, from a consumer's perspective, is that from sort of the adverts they see, the um, is it sort of e-commerce boxes that they can buy things from? That is a portion um, of the site. There's, there is a, we do work with different affiliate vendors and, and it's product-based, but I think a lot of what we're doing really is mission-based and talking about, you know, climate is probably the most linear example. You know, we launched a climate hub this year Um, which was really born out of audience and editorial insights that said, your readers are consuming a ton of content about climate. They want to learn more. And there's a real um, affinity towards wanting to help everything that's going on in the world around the climate crisis and global warming and, and make an impact. And so we launched this hub. A lot of the content on there is meant to, um, you know, sort of expose stories that aren't always being told offer activists a platform to share their story. And so for brands who also have similar climate and or sustainability messaging, it's a perfect contextual synergy, but it also is helping to grow that audience pool on the site to say, hey, you know, we know we have these eco warriors. You can target them even if they're not reading about global warming. You know, maybe they're reading about um, the US Open or a new show that's streaming on Netflix. It doesn't matter if we can identify who those people are and the issues that make them tick. And that more so than, okay, you know, here's a link to buy, you know, a sustainable sweater, which is a piece of it, sure. It really is about the root of the issues and making sure that we're creating content that sort of drives that actionable um, behavior. 
Yeah. It, was that refresh um, something that just happened in the US or was that across the US? That is a global brands? refresh. Um, the Making Change Happen mission, I think, applies to the brands across the world. I think what those issues are and how people respond to them and what those actions look like may be different. Um, but the world is more globally connected than ever before. And so many of the issues, um, I, you know, I, I joke sometimes that there were silver linings from COVID. And one of those was that the world was all going through it together. And it's really, um, for me, it was almost reassuring to know that my colleagues in London were feeling the same struggles and isolation and concerns that I was. And that's not because I live here and they live there. You know, it was global. And a lot of these issues that people are having, um, you know, amplifying voices that, that don't always have a platform, the climate, of course, um, equal rights, these affect people across the world. And so this idea of um, making change happen has been innate to the independence DNA. And this new mission is really about pushing it forward in in our commercial strategy and our, our editorial mission. One of the initiatives I read about was a, a sort of, I think it was a petitions platform. Mm-hmm. What, what was the thinking behind that? Yep. So um, your petitions will be launching in early 2022. And it is an idea really born out of our readers again and, and listening to the cues that they're giving us um, to help amplify causes and, and missions that are near and dear to them. And um, you know, I was speaking about this in Ad Week New York last week and someone said, oh, you know, you could put anything up there. You could just say any petition and it would just go on the independence, <laughs> your, your petition site. I said, well, no, you know, there is editorial oversight to ensure that what would be supported and promoted on the platform um, would be ethical and just. But it's about, you know, the idea that our readers are creators and they have a voice. And if we can provide a platform to help them attract other like-minded individuals to support a shared cause, um, it's an amazing thing that we can do and, and connect our readers that way. So it is um, you know, user-generated in its ideation stage with editorial oversight um, to make sure that everything obviously is ethical and um, you know, in, in the tone and affiliation that we we think would be honorable i should say yeah so so i can't start a a petition for free kittens for everybody (laughs) exactly exactly i was like oh you know and and that's obviously you know there's a very um delicate line when we're talking about user-generated content and i certainly think we have an amazing editorial team that will ensure those guardrails are in place so that people feel empowered but want to use the site appropriately and i i think there's room for different voices to still be heard in a way that feels respectful of different viewpoints you know it's it doesn't need to be polarizing yeah um, and one area i know has been causing some commercial issues for news sites has been uh, this idea of brand safety and there are a lot of advertisers certainly over the last four or five years have gone quite heavy on block lists for politics and covid related stories how have you handled this over in the u.s yeah Brand safety block lists are one of my least favorite advertiser trends. Um, I think I I 100% understand why it's a catch-all and it's a really easy sort of application to do in a pre-bid setting. Um, But we, you know, we were working with an advertiser and they had the word shot in the block list, which is true when you're talking about gun violence, but not true when you're talking about taking a shot on goal in a soccer match. And so I think it's sort of the perfect mundane example 
to really look at text as not the be all end all. And so what we're really trying to do is educate our advertisers, um, agencies and brands alike about the strategies that we have on the site, which include technology partners um, and human oversight to ensure that brands are targeting what they want um, and who they want. So of course, if someone said, you know, I do not want to be around gun violence and shootings, that is 100% understandable and things happen in the world and we would never put an advertiser up against that content. But that same advertiser could have an, you know, a massive following against global sport and that winning shot in soccer um, could be a massive story that they want to be around. And so we've really tried to push the conversation into this idea of agility and moving away from block lists and really helping to work with advertisers to define what are those key moments that they want to target, what is sort of the, the feeling behind those moments, and sort of where can we push the boundaries, um, specifically in some of the more lifestyle and culture content, to make sure that if it's just a word in there and it's not at the root of the story, is that something they would be comfortable with? You know, we see a lot of data about um, stories on news sites and how they sort of pop for 24 hours. Um, there's a little bit of a social lift, maybe 36 hours later. Um, and then they sort of peter out and they move on to the next story. Even if it's an iteration of the same story, the story is continuing to move on. And so for a brand who wants to be able to connect with consumers, that real-time alignment is key. And if you're sort of muddying the waters with a thousand block words, it's going to be impossible to reach consumers as the stories are breaking. Um, and so we're really, really focused on this idea of building subsets that feel really safe to people and working with our team to create content alignments in real time so that brands can maximize reach and we sort of know um, what is actually on the site is safe. Yeah, there's there was a really interesting piece of research out recently in the UK where they looked at um, the impact, like sort of what people th were thinking about advertisers advertising against um, sort of these really big stories. And actually, it didn't bother people at all. The fact that it was on an established publisher website had this right. sort of like twenty percent uplift. But um, right, yeah, pe people sort of weren't bothered if your advert appeared against a, a shooting story. They were like, "Well, it's <laughs> it's a reliable news site." Right. I mean, I think it's, you know, there's shock, there's shock, right? And we're so privileged to be at a site that isn't writing salacious headlines, you know, that isn't putting clickbait out there. Um, you know, there are certainly stories that happen, depending on what your the brand would be, where I would understand horrible things happening and brand saying that's not the right alignment. And, you know, we have an amazing um, support team that can change settings instantaneously instantaneously as events unfold but the catch-all of a block list and i really do think that soccer example just hits it home right mm -hmm. someone taking a shot on goal in a soccer match may be the biggest story of the world cup and for a brand to miss that opportunity because someone on cell 994 of a block list of 2,000 words put the word shot in is a missed opportunity for that brand and you know, technology partners, I think, are also coming around and are also understanding these massive, massive block lists. Um, it's not it's not working. And so sort of how can we as a news brand work with those technology partners to help advocate for our site in a way that their technology can better read and assess what we're putting out there um, is happening in tandem with the conversations we're having with advertisers. And I think both are equally important. Yeah. So you've, you've got quite a few big projects out of the way. What's next on your list? 
What's next? You know, no, we're not, we're not doing anything. No, um, we are, you know, super excited for 2022. We sort of touched on your, the, your petitions initiative, which I think is really exciting for the brand. And I spoke about climate and we've also made a couple big commitments to climate. The company is going, um, to be making obviously additional announcements around our climate initiatives, um, which I just think sort of, you know, put, our actions in terms of what we're saying we're doing and actually doing them. And so we are going to be net zero by 2030 and we're going to be sharing how we're doing that and really helping to educate readers around that process. Um, and data, data for us is at the root of everything. Our team has been working incredibly hard um, with everything that's been going on with Google and the deprecation of cookies. We want to ensure that we're leading the way with a data strategy that brands feel really comfortable with. and. Um, that we're offering a first-in-class solution when the status quo doesn't work anymore. And so, um, you know, it is about, for us in the U.S., yes, we're having those conversations around educating them. What is the independent? Um, how can we be a partner? But it's also leaning on the expertise and, and amazing tools that we do have. Um, and data is really one where I think we're just so ahead of the game in terms of our first-party data, our partnership with other data providers to be able to offer these unique segments so that when the game does change, brands can come to the independence with confidence and say, I know you can help me reach this consumer and we can say 100% and help deliver um, a campaign in a new and efficient way for them. Yeah. Are you finding advertisers understand the changes that are coming next year or are they a little bit on the back foot again? I think, you know, it's a mixed bag. I think you know, change is never easy. That's why we're all about, you know, helping to make change happen. But at the end of the day, you know, it's very hard to disrupt a successful strategy until sort of their hand is forced. So I think having the conversation and sort of um, maybe it's a smaller test and learn initiative while they're still using an existing strategy and just sort of um, wetting the palate to say, we know this is coming and we're prepared, you know, we're not going to be caught um, in the dark on this one gets people comfortable. But of course, I think it's like when you rip a Band-Aid off, we're not going to know sort of how people react and how much we can sort of push until it actually happens. So for us, it's about, you know, shoring up our segments, making sure we're super confident in where we feel like our audience um, offers unique opportunities for advertisers and what those segments look like and just um, socializing them with brands so that when the time comes, we are ready to go and there is... Um, 100% confidence in our solution. And then the last thing we ask all our guests is what's the last thing you read or saw that really affected you? Absolutely. This is it's a good one. Um, so I have two young kids and all I have been reading lately is about the COVID vaccine regulations here in the U.S. for children. I, you know, I, I read an amazing article in, in New York Magazine that was not directly about vaccines, but it was talking about like, what does a play date look like now for a kid? You know, if a parent is vaccinated and a kid isn't, are they inside? Are they masked? Are they not? And look, it's something universal. Like I said before, you know, everyone went through a, a lockdown and everyone is coming out of lockdown and sort of what does the new normal look like? And I think the idea of being able to vaccinate kids will lead to an even new iteration of what normal looks like um, for everyone. So there's a lot of excitement here about that and just making sure that, you know, we're helping to keep our kids safe and, and hopefully get back to a real normal, normal soon.
So if you were subscribed to our daily newsletter, you may have already heard about that audio story that we spoke about. That's where we put all the stories that we think are important for a day about publishing in media. We have an average 45% open rate. <laughs> I'll say that again. That is good. 45%? That is good. Yeah. It's actually brilliant for a daily. Sign up on the website and find out why so many people find it so valuable. 45%. That's at voices.media. And the three of us are working very, very hard on our annual Media Moments report. It's Media Moments 20. How are we, how are we at the end of 2021? I don't Where know. Is I'm, scared. I'm scared. My life what is just disappearing it's into the ring. <laughs> um, it's still March. Anyway. It's March 2020 in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm still stuck there. Um, yeah, we're doing this. It's our annual report. Uh, it's going to be 12 chapters this year. We're looking at everything from subscriptions to um, NFTs. Didn't think we'd ever have to write about yeah. them. Anyway, uh, we are launching that on the 1st of December and we're doing a an event, a virtual event, if you'd like to join us. Um, you can sign up for that on our website, voices.media, or we're tweeting about it at Media Voices Pod. Uh, we're lining up some really great panellists for the event and hopefully we can confirm some of them in the next few days. So, yeah, please do join us. It's really nice and, to see you. And we are delighted to announce that the Publisher Podcast Award entries are open until December the 10th. Please do get your entries in. We've seen some fan fantastic ones already but we want to see as many as entered last year because that was a fantastic celebration and hopefully we're going to be announcing some more interesting news about the publisher podcast awards in the very near future but until next week when we'll be back with a fantastic guest thank you so much for listening and do stay safe